Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Cities across Canada, including here in Vancouver, saw competing demonstrations over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict this weekend. In Montreal, police confirmed they also responded to a conflict that erupted between protesters and counter-protesters at a rally in support of Israel near that city's downtown. Now, that comes one day after thousands attended a pro-Palestinian march in Montreal as well. Similar situation in Toronto and here in Vancouver, where rallies and demonstrations were held both Saturday and Sunday to support the two sides in the conflict. For more on what is going on overseas today, we're joined now by Global News European correspondent Redmond Shannon. Good morning, Redmond. Good morning, Simi. So what is the latest with the hostilities overseas? Well, sadly and somewhat predictably, the um, airstrikes and rocket attacks continue uh, overnight. Um, uh, dozens of rockets were fired from Gaza toward uh, Israeli cities, uh, um, Israeli towns. And before dawn this morning, the Israeli Defense Forces targeted what they say were uh, militant uh, facilities, uh, Hamas facilities um, in Gaza. And uh, there have been at least three deaths and one reportedly a senior uh, militant commander there. And it's believed that there already have been some retaliatory attacks from Gaza because of that. Uh, expect more. If this does indeed turn out to be the case, the Israeli Defense Forces say they have uh, killed that commander. Um, but of course, let's not forget that uh, the mo- most people who have died in this uh, have been civilians. Um, 58 children on the Gazan side, two children in Israel have died as well. And these are the real, uh, you know, these, these are the real tragedies. But uh, we're looking at over 200 deaths so far in, in one week of hostilities. And it's, it's difficult to see right now any ceasefire in the near term. Is any, like usually there's, you know, international mediation getting involved. Has any country said that, listen, we have to try to put a ceasefire in place here? Yes, well, Egypt, um, as is often the case, is getting involved trying to broker a solution. Gaza and Israel uh, territories both border Egypt on the Sinai Peninsula there, and Egypt often gets involved. Um, the Israeli or the Egyptian president rather saying that he's hopeful that something can be done. But uh, the indications are that um, it's not going to happen soon, primarily because uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking yesterday, he spoke on U.S. television yesterday, um, said that the that from the Israeli side, they have more targets that they want to take out and more um, yeah, more basically more work to do uh, for want of a better phrase. And Hmm. uh, as long as that continues, you can imagine that rockets will come back from Gaza. Although um, one indication um, that that might be ramping down a little is that there were fewer rockets from Gaza last night compared to the two previous nights. There is a a finite number of uh, rockets in Gaza because it is under a blockade. The rockets are manufactured in there, but... Uh, so many have been fired over the past week that um, it could be it could soon be the case that they run out of uh, options in terms of firing back against Israel. 
So at this point, then, it doesn't sound like anything is slowing down. No, the UN Security Council met yesterday, and as is so often the case with the UN Security Council, they were unable to agree anything. On this uh, occasion, it is believed uh, that the United States, being Israel's biggest backer, of course, um, uh, continues to say that Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, and there are, of course, other countries saying similar things, but uh, the US is uh, slightly uh, less vociferous in its condemnation compared to other members of the Security Council. And uh, as long as that continues, um, as long as the United States perhaps doesn't um, pull rank on Israel as it may be able to do, you can imagine that uh, Netanyahu will continue with these airstrikes against Gaza. Mm-hmm. But um, it's going to be at least a few days, one can imagine, before anything will, will slow down. All right, Redmond, thanks for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's hard enough right now for a lot of businesses to find employees. I've been reading about this where down in the United States, companies are offering signing bonuses and free cases of beer in the case of a brewery just to find employees for people to take on the jobs. Well, could that situation be about to get even worse? Labor market experts are warning of a looming resignation boom because there are a lot of employees who have been contemplating an exit and perhaps retirement even, but they have largely held off for the last 18 months or so because of the uncertainty in what was going on. But workplaces are shifting. There's a better sense of what the next phase of work looks like. And there are concerns now that this pent-up attrition is going to begin and build. During the pandemic, something like 130,000 people have left the workforce. That's according to Statistics Canada, meaning they've opted to stop working. They're no longer seeking employment. Might be burnout, might be the need to take care of family members, of reskilling, uh, maybe, you know, retirement, whatever the case may be. But there are experts out there who think that this wave of resignations is in the mail. Uh, Joining us now to talk more about this is employment lawyer and HR consultant, Laura Williams, managing partner of Williams HR Law. Laura, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. What makes you think that there's all these resignations coming? Well, it's what we're seeing on the ground. I mean, we work with employers throughout uh, sectors and industries, And employees, naturally, given the uncertainty that we've had and the fact that people are working differently, they've been introspective, work has changed, and um, they've been thinking about where other opportunities may be that could provide more meaning and, and value in terms of their work experience. See, that's so interesting because that means are they just, they're leaving their jobs to go look for opportunities elsewhere. And generally, I think a lot of us don't think of this time as, you know, an opportunity to go find something elsewhere. Well, it's also the fact that in a lot of organizations, there hasn't been great communication as to how the working conditions are going to change permanently. And a lot of employees have expectations that now that they have worked more flexibly, which has served them in terms of the demands that they've had, that they, uh, you know, they're looking for different working arrangements. And there are a lot of employers right now that um, are happy to employ employees that are working not in their in commuting distance. So from that perspective, the, the labor market looks very different and opportunities do abound in some cases. Okay, but how are companies supposed to deal with that then? 
Well, the best way to deal with it, if you want to kind of stave off some of the attrition that will happen, is to communicate. Set expectations with respect to how work will change. So if you do plan as an employer to offer more flexibility in keeping with what a lot of employees have become accustomed to, then you should communicate that as early as you possibly can. Because again, this uncertainty that we've been in for this protracted period of time, who knew we would be where we are now? It feels very much like Groundhog Day to most of us. So it's, you know, it's really important for employers to communicate. Let employees know kind of how things will change on a more permanent basis. Is this a a salary thing, Laura? You know, for the longest time we heard about wages being stagnant, things not moving, minimum wage wasn't enough. I feel like it's beyond just what people are getting paid at this point. I think it is beyond what people are getting paid. I mean, we, we are in a time where, again, people are really reflective. They're seeking more meaning. Uh, they've enjoyed, in many cases, you know, time with their families much more intensely. And for some, they want to either continue in that working arrangement or they want to, to you know, change their working conditions so that they're doing more meaningful work. So how are employers supposed to, to deal with this? I mean, it's hard enough already, right, getting businesses back up and running. Well, Wise employers are going to ensure that they also are looking for employees. You've got to keep the the pipeline flowing. You know, think about too how you do want to um, continue in meeting, shifting client and customer expectations, what that's going to look like, and where you can also draw talent from. Because again, you may be able to if you're going to have a more kind of virtual or remote working arrangement in kind of going forward with permanence, then you may be able to draw on talent from different places should you find yourself short. It just It's such a generational shift, isn't it, Laura? Because, you know, when I was looking, you know, the younger generations, if you're Gen X or something like that, you were used to really competing hard for a job and just being grateful for having that job. That's, it feels very different today for the younger generation now. It is different. And the pandemic has just doubled down on that difference now. So, yes, working expectations are very different. And employers are going to have to be very mindful and agile and, again, communicative with respect to setting expectations. Right. So is that how you can prepare for this if you are a business? Because I know of a lot of businesses that right now are having trouble finding employees. How, How do they compete? Well, it depends on the industry. And I think we've got to really reevaluate the skills that are needed to perform certain roles. I think a lot of businesses are even out of touch with what they need to perform the work and the services that they provide. So it really is a time where businesses should be popping the hood. What skills do I need? Where do I need to get them from? And um, what kind of employee experience am I going to provide? Because another reason why a lot of employees are leaving is because culture has been drastically shifted in many organizations. So the the feel of work has Mm -hmm. changed. So employers have to be intentional. What type of employee experience am I going to provide and communicate that? Oh, that's such a good point. Employee experience. I'll bet a lot of employers and business owners, managers have never thought about that before. No, they haven't thought about it, but their employees have. And so, and their employees are, you know, feeling the difference of what the workplace felt like, how they, in many cases, they were working, you know, side by each, so to speak, with their colleagues. Mm-hmm. And that's changed. 
Now they're working virtually. A lot of them feel disconnected, isolated. And um, so they've lost that connection, which really kept them you know, retained by the employer. How soon do you think we are going to start to see some of these resignations and changes? I think we're going to start seeing them imminently. And the reason being is, you know, we're in late spring. Um, and now people, it's almost like the flowers blooming. People start, you know, are kind of kind of wiping the, the, the dust from in front of their eyes and they're starting to look and, and they're starting to, to open, their ideas are flowing a lot more with respect to perhaps what their next chapter will look like. Laura, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thanks for having me. That is Laura Williams, Managing Partner of Williams HR Law. And they're saying that, you know, for a bunch of different reasons, a wave of resignations are about to come upon businesses here where perhaps employees are ready to change jobs, that maybe they want to get out of this line of work. Essentially, the last year or so has made people rethink the job that they are doing. And for businesses, that is going to make it even more challenging to get employees, especially in the tourism and hospitality business. I, I feel like that's something we're going to wait and see happen here where people are going to start traveling again with a vengeance, right? They're going to want to head out somewhere and they're going to have to ramp up all those tourism and hospitality businesses. But perhaps a lot of those employees found jobs elsewhere. Maybe they decided they don't want to be in the business anymore. Maybe they decided that salary isn't going to cut it for them anymore. Essentially, they're, we're on the brink, I think, of seeing a lot of those changes happen. Now, if you're somebody who has changed jobs during the pandemic. Maybe you are about to. Maybe you've had a rethink of everything that you want to do. What's going on? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Is it too late to stop the Surrey policing transition? Well, the widow of a murdered Surrey hockey dad doesn't think so. She's seeking a referendum on the transition. And Darlene Bennett's actually filed an application with Elections BC seeking that binding referendum. And for more on that, uh, she joins us this morning to talk about it. Darlene, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me this morning. Let me ask you, first of all, have you gotten any update from police at all into the case of your husband, Paul Bennett? At this time, no. I, I know as much as everyone else does. That must be incredibly frustrating for you. So hard. It is. It is. But, you know, I have to have hope and faith that they're doing their job, and, and I do, and that they will get justice for Paul one day and answers for my family to why this happened. Has this, do you think, impacted your feeling on the idea of them transitioning from the RCMP to a Surrey police force? Um, a bit. Not, not completely. I mean, I'm worried about Paul's case falling through the cracks. I know with anything, any kind of big change, there's always um, things that can go on. And, and I, just, I want justice for him. I don't want his case jeopardized. I know... Um, with the transition, they are going to stay with a, um integrated uh, unit, and I just worry they're going to change the members with IHIT, and they're also going to change the members now with the Surrey RCMP. So, you know, things, communication, something, you know, I just don't want something to get missed. Now, your husband was killed, and this will be a case that many people, of course, remember, uh, right in the driveway of your home in Cloverdale. It was three years ago in a case of mistaken identity. 
no explanation so far as to what happened. You know, was it a mistaken gang hit? So when you hear about the increasing gang activity right now, Darlene, what goes through your head? I'm scared. Um, You know, this happened at my home. And when you see these murders happening in busy restaurant areas, um, outside of toy stores, malls, it scares me. Um, You know, I, I, I don't want another family to take this journey. It is incredibly tough and challenging. And I, I just don't want someone to get hurt. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So you decided to file this you know, request for a referendum. So tell me about this. What do you want to see happen? You know, I want some transparency from our um, uh, political leaders in Surrey. Um, you know, there's been very little information released about this. And I said this from the start. You know, I just want to know what we're getting, what we're losing, and how this is all going to make me safer. And, you know, your people's voices aren't being heard right now. You can send in letters, but you don't get, you don't get responses. I sent a letter into the board eight months ago and never got a response until I tweeted something, you know, I'm still waiting, I'm still waiting, and then I finally, someone answered it. Like, that's not right. I had some real concerns on there, and, you know, human decency would have been that they would have responded to that earlier. Yeah, I think a lot of us would be shocked to hear that they didn't respond to you earlier on that, given especially that their argument is that what this is supposed to be more community-minded, right? More community-responsive. Exactly. And I right now, it's, it, it's like the door has been shut in everybody's face. It's going to affect every citizen that lives in Surrey, and they have to pay for it, but they get no information on it. Now, when you talk to people, what what do they think? You know, because I, I feel like the mayor, the board, they move forward thinking that they have, they believing they have the support of Surrey residents. I think the majority of people, you know, want to have a voice in this. They want to be heard and they want to have the ability to decide moving forward. I, you know, I've yet to meet one person that actually supports this. Really? Yes. So what are you, so you're hoping to have a referendum, but does that to have an elections BC, you know, do they get involved in this? What have they told you about the process? Um, I'm waiting to hear back from them. And I have heard that they've received the initiative and it will go forward to the chief electoral officer. And um, I'm hoping that they will allow it to give the people of Surrey a voice to get informed and, and to be able to choose how they want to move forward. I'm not, you know, swaying people to um, vote a certain way, but I, I want people to be informed. I want them to make a good decision. I want them to know how much this is going to cost and if at all it's going to make a difference at all to our public safety. Right. So the Surrey Police Vote Campaign, which is what you mm-hmm. are spearheading, how, yes. how many people, like, is it a petition that you got people to sign? Is it just you wrote a letter? How did this work? Um, it, it's, I submitted the initiative. Right now, uh, we're asking people to sign up to be canvassers and um, to sign digitally right now uh, because of COVID on uh, the surreypolicevote.ca website. And we're hoping that as vaccine rollout um, happens, um, 
and uh, you know uh, things in the community get lifted our, our um, ability to meet um, we can start collecting signatures so then have you ever heard Darlene from like Surrey Council or the mayor or anybody about your concerns in this process no no I, I sent a letter probably six months after um, Paul passed away um, that when the new council was elected, I, I received one letter, and quite truthfully, um, I've sent many since then, but I've never received anything back from them. Never? Never. That must be like so, like frustrating, discouraging, but I just find it so hard to believe that they somebody wouldn't respond to you on this one. It's very disheartening. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I want to be an informed person. I'm not unreasonable. I want to understand. But um, as I said before, it, it really feels like the door has been shut in our face. Well, darling, keep keep us in touch here. Uh, let us know what goes on with this, okay? I will do that. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time this morning. That is Darlene Bennett. Uh, You've heard her name many times in the news over the last three years. She is the widow of Paul Bennett. And Paul Bennett was the hockey dad uh, shot in the driveway, killed of their Cloverdale home three years ago. And what police say was a case of mistaken identity. And remember that case, right? No progress that she knows of, no leads that she knows of. She can't even get you know, a Surrey City Council member or the mayor to talk to her about this process that she's so concerned about, that she's so worried about her husband's case falling through the cracks with the transition to the new Surrey Police Force. I'm shocked that they couldn't, what, bother to return a phone call to her uh, just out of courtesy to let her know. I mean, isn't the whole argument being that the Surrey Police Force will be more community responsive? I think she deserves a phone call, don't you? And then today, this is probably going to come up again because we're hearing there's going to be an announcement this morning with Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. They're expected to announce the approval of some new provincial funding that will allow Crime Stoppers to uh, once again start up their awareness campaign against gang violence. They've done this before. It's an advertising and awareness campaign that encourages the reporting of anonymous tips about gangs, about illegal weapons, crimes. So they are going to get that going uh, once again. And that announcement is coming up this morning about 9.30 a.m. And you'll be hearing more about it in the news. This is Mornings with Simi. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Hey, do you remember the science fair in school? Oh, the planning for your project and putting it all together. 
I myself found that stressful. The one or two times of the year, like that in participation, right? Those are the two things that I found stressful. But boy, it is so popular more than ever right now too, especially with all the increase in the encouragement of people taking on more of the STEM projects too. Well, the Virtual Canada-Wide Science Fair is kicking off this week. They say they're poised to set records for online activity, participation, education. They've got all sorts of amazing projects that are going to be taking place from right across Canada. And we're going to talk about that right now. So joining us, we have a couple of guests. We have Rennie Barlow, who's the Executive Director from Youth Science Canada. Rennie, thank you for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. And we also have Catherine Diakonov, a grade 11 student and contestant from Vancouver. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so pleased to hear about this. First off, Catherine, tell me about your project. Yeah, so my project essentially investigated neurodegenerative diseases, and it all started when I found that neurodegenerative diseases are among the top five causes of death worldwide. And one major cause of these neurodegenerative diseases are high levels of oxidative stress, a condition which has essentially no cure. So I decided to reduce and prevent high levels of oxidative stress by potentially creating nano-antioxidant solutions to target free radicals. And I experimented with both single nano-antioxidants as well as nano-antioxidant combinations. And I found that nano-antioxidants are definitely a potential treatment for these neurodegenerative diseases in the future. Um, Catherine, you're in grade 11. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> have, you, have you always loved science like this? Yeah, I started participating in science fairs from grade six, and it honestly just fueled my passion and love for STEM, and I'm just so passionate about any topic, and I'm so curious, and yeah, I just always loved STEM. No kidding. You sound like a shoo-in to me, but Rennie, you tell me, is Catherine's project typical of what you're going to see from right across Canada? I don't know about typical, but it certainly represents the uh, the level that we see amongst uh, many of the projects. Um, uh, you know, they range from you know, really, really good projects all the way up to projects that are kind of at the master's level uh, in, in post-secondary. And again, these are these are projects done by students in grades seven to twelve. So, how do you put, how do you make this virtual this year? I imagine this is the second year you've had to do this. Yeah. So last year uh, we launched the um, the YSC online STEM fair. We basically invited every any grade seven to twelve student who had done a project. Um, to uh, to join us and uh, simply share the project, we did some um, uh, some very light judging and awarded some virtual ribbons. But this year we're going for the entire uh, entire usual package. We've got all our uh, as many of our regions on board as we're able to uh, to do it to uh, hold virtual fairs across the country. We normally have 105 regional fairs in every province and territory, and. Um, and so we've held regional fairs at the regional level, and, uh, and now this week uh, we're kicking off the Canada-wide Science Fair, which is bringing together 374 finalists with 337 projects. Amazing. Can anybody kind of log on and see these projects? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you, if you go to cwsf.youthscience.ca, you can uh, register, especially if you're a teacher. Um, uh, you, we're inviting the teachers to bring their classes and uh, and to do a virtual field trip um, to the Canada-wide science fair because as you mentioned in the uh, at the top of the story the uh, uh, we've got activities we've got games we have prizes we also have all the top projects to go and visit and we have STEM Expo uh, to come and uh, have a look at which is uh, exhibits um, provided by universities and agencies and so on and then we also have uh, CWSF TV. 
Okay, so Catherine, I would imagine this isn't your first year doing this at this level at the science fair, is it? No, it isn't. <laughs> what are some of the other projects that you've done? Uh, yeah, so I actually made it to the Canada-wide science fair in grade 8 and 9. And uh, those projects were definitely a bit less complex than this year's project. But they essentially, my grade 8 project involved creating an all-purpose powder for the refugee population, which I believe included an all-purpose uh, shampoo, body powder, and deodorant. And my grade 9 project actually developed bioplastic walls uh, to reduce flood uh, expenses and essentially just made it so whenever there's a flood, uh, you don't have to replace typical gypsum drywall, but instead the bioplastic walls just absorb the water uh, with no mold and no uh, other side effects. So it really is environmentally friendly. Okay, so Catherine, you're making me feel like I'm just sitting here twiddling my <laughs> thumbs doing nothing. So what what happens to your ideas? Because these all sound amazing. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of my bioplastic one, I actually am keen to develop it further because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So many labs were shut down and uh, opportunities were definitely um, there weren't there weren't as many opportunities available. But I definitely want to continue the bioplastic wall project because uh, gypsum drywall is so expensive to uh, kind of dispose of and it never really biodegrades. So I really just want to continue lab experimentation and even work with uh, companies such as Intact Insurance, who actually approached me at the Canada Wide Science Fair in 2019, and really make this project um, on the market. This sounds like a job fair. I was just going to think that too. Yeah. So, so Rennie, does that happen a lot? Do you get companies kind of coming along here going, you know what, I'm going to hire one of these kids? Well, Intact is actually one of our major sponsors, and uh, they have an award uh, around... Um, uh, climate change resilience. And so, um, you know, there are companies absolutely that are looking at the uh, the Canada-wide science fair for future talent. Uh, you know, we've got projects, everything ranging from, you know, applying artificial intelligence and machine learning to various problems, to the kinds of things that uh, Catherine's talking about, uh, environmental uh, environmental solutions and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to solve uh, issues. We've got actually eight challenge areas that we encourage um, students to, uh, to consider when they're looking at developing a project and uh, and every single one of them has a, has a potential impact on community schools home um, and, and even global issues so what are those some of those challenge areas what should kids keep in mind when they're developing these projects sure so the uh, the, the eight challenges are agriculture fisheries and food where we're you know looking at uh, issues related to food security sustainability and so on um, curiosity and ingenuity, which is really the, you know, sort of scientific fascination, the astronomy, the, uh, you know, the, those, those kinds of uh, um, problems, uh, digital technology, disease and illness, energy, environment and climate change, health and wellness, and natural resources. Okay, so Catherine, you're in grade 11 this year. I mean, what are you going to do for grade 12? How do you top this? Yeah, I'm definitely not completely sure about what I'm going to do for grade 12 yet. I definitely want to start brainstorming about it. Um, I definitely want to take a medicinal approach to my project next year and potentially see if I can even apply for ISEF, the international competition. Um, but we'll see where the projects take me. It all starts with just a question and then anything from there is just research, research, research. I'll bet. So every year then from grade 7 to 12, you've come up with like a new project. Is that right? Yes, I have. Yes. And did it all start with just a question and then you did some research and thought, yeah, I could do a project on this? Yeah, it started with a project as simple as testing a non-organic and organic soil and seeing how plants grew. And then it just built in complexity and we're, now we're here. Yeah. 
No kidding. Now we're here. Listen, Catherine, I assume you're going to win because your project sounds amazing. <laughs> so good luck. Um, and Rennie, one more time, where can anybody check this out? Yep, if they go to cwsf.youthscience.ca, that will be the link uh, to, uh, to register. And then it will switch over on Wednesday to take them directly right into the, Canada, the virtual Canada-wide science fair. All right. Listen, best of luck to both of you, Catherine. Good luck. Okay, we're going to be rooting for you. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's Catherine Diakonov. She's a grade 11 student and contestant from here in Vancouver. She is participating in the Canada-wide science fair that is going on this week, as a matter of fact. Starts this morning. I think 8 o'clock this morning, actually, it gets underway, so pretty shortly there. They've got exhibits from right across the country, 375 student finalists. And all I could think of when I was talking to Catherine was, I remember one year doing one on electricity, (laughs) which is nothing compared to what students like Catherine are working on these days. We'll be right back. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of generalizations out there about millennials and their lifestyles and their priorities. So many of them are unfair too, right? Like we all hate being stereotyped, but you know, millennials often get made fun of. They're accused of living beyond their means, traveling more lavishly than they can afford, and then staging it all for Instagram and TikTok. Like, yeah, that's funny. Ha ha. But when it comes to the workplace, employers can't afford to be making fun of millennials anymore. They need them in the workplace and they're having a tough time in many cases attracting them. Joining us now to talk more about that is our contributor, Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, millennials and Gen Zs now make up the majority of the workplace. So it's time for employers to take that all very seriously. And employers have been trying to crack the code on how to attract Gen Zs and younger millennials for a while now. There have been lots of unconventional perks that have become the norm, and that can include anything from free lunches to snack bars at the workplace. Casual dress code at tech jobs and startups is now pretty typical. And so are gym memberships. But a newly released survey conducted by Angus Reid of the Canadian Payroll Association shows that younger workers actually want what the older generations got. They just want accurate and timely pay. Kate, does that mean like getting paid on time um, and making sure everything is right? Yes. So it doesn't refer to how much you're being paid. Of course, we all want to get paid more, (laughs) but at just the right amount at the right time. So if your payday is a Thursday, you should be paid on Thursday. And I spoke with CEO and and co-owner of Minhas Breweries, Manjeet Minhas, who also uh, stars on that entrepreneurship show Dragon's Den that some people might be familiar with. And she told me um, that she actually has a personal story to share about learning the hard way about what the majority of the workforce values first and foremost. My brother and I started Minhas Breweries 21 years ago, and we started getting employees and having payroll. We really made some missteps in the beginning years. And by that, I mean, uh, we actually, our payroll um, was missed um, by a day. It was late a day, twice in a row. And I not only heard about it um, from all my staff, but even um, I myself recognized that this was a breakdown of trust between the employer, myself, and our employees. And 
I also discovered that, you know what, if anybody is, our, our, our team members are looking to get and expecting to get paid on a Wednesday, on a Thursday, they have mortgage payments coming out. They have car payments coming out. They have financial commitments um, that are based on that consistent and timely pay. Okay, this is so interesting to me then, Raji, because I, I, I assumed this is something that gets done. I had no idea this was so common that people were not getting paid when they were supposed to get paid. Oh yeah, getting paid late is pretty common. And I even, um, of course, now I don't get paid late, but you know, early in my career, I was used to being paid late. Really? And you don't have much choice. You just got to hang on for it. But I'm now we're hearing that people will leave as a result of that. And among respondents of the Canadian Pay Association Essential Benefits Survey, 74% reported that they would consider moving on from their employer if trust was broken around accurate and timely pay. And getting paid late when you're freelance, for example, or you're on some kind of short-term contract, that happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And em employers believe that, you know, oh, hey, we're a flexible, flexible new small company. Maybe, um, hey, our employees should be flexible too. But I think that people are starting to appreciate more an employer who cares about mental health, who cares about fostering a work environment that's, you know, inclusive and that kind of thing. So I was surprised to not see that reflected because anecdotally from my friends, that's what I'm hearing. They'll leave a job, even if it's paying well, uh, they'll leave a job if they don't feel like their mental health is supported. Interesting. Okay, so I can see the freelancing, the contract people. I know that's always been a problem, right? My husband worked in the construction industry and people paying late or not at all, whatever. That's that's a huge issue. But if you're a company and you're running, you know, salaried employees, yeah, if you're not getting paid on time, that's a problem. For sure. And Minhas, um, Manjeet Minhas, whom I spoke with uh, there in that clip, she said that um, her employees would sometimes let her know really vocally, but other times they wouldn't. And they might let it slide once or twice. But what's happening in that period is their morale is going down. Employee morale goes down and it's hard for the whole culture to kind of buoy above that, right? So it brings down an entire company potentially. And of course, once you have good employees, you want to retain them. That's half the battle, right? Well, in this market, for sure, because it, I think sometimes companies underestimate how much it costs them to constantly be hiring new people and getting people trained up. Yeah, this study was interesting to me and kind of satisfying because you know, it shows that millennials are not frivolous, right? Millennials are shown to like have different lifestyle and cultural and even political view values than people older than them. But ultimately, we want security and financial stability too. We want to be able to plan for our futures eventually buy homes, um, even if we won't be able to. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even funny, right? We're laughing, but it's not funny. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's pretty it, dark. <laughs> it is pretty dark. Okay, that's a fascinating look at that. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is Raji Sahal, our contributor, talking about a survey that shows if you asked millennials and Gen Z what the number one thing they want in their workplace is, it is timely and accurate pay. 74% of people saying they would consider moving on from their employer if that did not happen. Are you one of those people? Is that something that you think doesn't happen in your workplace? You can tell us your story, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Some questions this morning about tactics used by the Vancouver Police Department. For instance, how do you go from looking for a dark-skinned man in his 40s 
to handcuffing and detaining a black man in his 80s without even asking him a single question and then say, well, he matched the description of the suspect. Ask yourself, would the same thing happen if police were looking for a white suspect in his 40s? No, it would not. It does seem outrageous that that could happen without anyone asking a simple question of a man before placing him in handcuffs. But that is what happened along the seawall in Vancouver on Friday. The man police put in handcuffs, a retired, well-known BC Supreme Court justice named Selwyn Romilly. And to be fair, the Vancouver Police Department apologized to Mr. Romilly, explained the procedure for filing a complaint to him. But how did it even get to that point? How did four officers surround Mr. Romilly and not even ask him one question before deciding they had to handcuff first and then ask questions later? It has brought out the apologies from the police department, from the mayor, lots of questions about how this could happen. We'll talk more about this now and other stories. Uh, Joining us is Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councillor. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. What did you think when you heard this story? Um, you know, my heart sunk, and then I really got anxious thinking about how this could have gone so sideways. Um, you know, thankfully, Justice Romilly, class act all the way, handled it with dignity and, and was fine. But what if he was having a bad day? What if, what if he was just not, not willing to just be stopped and handcuffed on the streets and, and reacted differently and how this could have gone incredibly sideways? And it also leaves me wondering how how often does this happen when it's not a well known D.C. Supreme Court judge that's that's being detained and handcuffed? Is this the is this current protocol for VPD? Uh, and of course, you know the the underpinnings of racial profiling that are that are so obviously manifest in this this approach so that it, it really leaves me struggling. I think a lot of people I had that same reaction too. So where do we start with this? Like, what do you do? Well, you know, I, I, I know the mayor is, is hoping to have this conversation at the police board of which he is the, the chair. Um, and, and, and I would, I would, I, I would like to hear from uh, the police. What is the protocol? And did this meet our standing protocols? And if, if so, perhaps we should be, because the simple fact of the matter is is that in this kind of context, it would be far more appropriate five police officers surrounding the man just to, to ask him a few questions. Excuse me, sir, can we, can we talk to you for a second? Uh, to move straight to handcuffs just seems uh, like escalating a potentially um, awkward, uncomfortable, yeah. even dangerous situation. That's the part I can't wrap my head around, right? Not asking a single question before you put him in handcuffs. This whole thing could have been avoided with a simple approach exactly how you just described it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I think about myself, if, if I was in a bad mood, I might not have been so compliant to, to be handcuffed for no reason. Obviously, you know, the, the police do have the right to do that, but I think it it, it misses the mark when when we're not kind of being more considerate of of how folks might react and how we de-escalate situations and and you know the whole sort of premise of you know innocent until proven guilty 
Yeah. Is there a mechanism, Councillor Fry, for this to be addressed by the police department? You mentioned the mayor taking it, you know, to the police board, but what other mechanisms do we have to say to the Vancouver police, this needs to be dealt with better? Uh, you know, I mean, I, it would, you know, I, we have a, a, a very good police force here, a very progressive police force. And I would hope that, that, that our police force would be a little bit more forthcoming and perhaps they will be this week in, 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 coming forward with uh, an acknowledgement and maybe kind of a, a circumspect context to really look at where this policy might need, uh, if it is, indeed is a standing policy, where it needs to be reframed, or if it's an indication of, you know, um, subconscious bias or even sort of systemic racism, what are we doing to, to, to challenge that? I mean, it's no secret that Black people are over-policed across North America. It's no secret. This is top of mind. This has been the conversation for the last year across North America um, and, and beyond just the, the year. But obviously, it's been a very prominent conversation. We have a police act review. We've had you know, calls to, to defund the police because of you know, allegations of systemic racism in that institution and, and, and you know, retasking police to do things differently. We've had conversations around around who is policed and why, uh, these are all top-of-mind conversations. So I think it is germane to those conversations, and it would be appropriate for the, for the police to acknowledge what happened and give us some more context and, and really take a hard look at how we're, we're moving to rectify these kind of inequities. Yeah, I think there's a lot of questions about, like, when do you do this and when do you stand back and and take a more watchful and observant approach to things. Uh, you know, I was thinking about what happened in English Bay on Saturday night, right? Two nights in a row, very busy, large crowds of people, DJ performing, uh, people dancing in front of the public washrooms, and for the most part, a, a hands-off approach. Uh, they do say at least one person was arrested, but we don't know why or what was going on. Like, aren't there questions about that approach? Yeah, you know, and I mean, I, I do acknowledge that it was a very busy weekend for the police and that throughout this pandemic, they've had a lot of challenging uh, interactions with, with folks who are, are defying public health orders. And, um, you know, and I think that there's got to be a better approach to dealing with, especially some of these sort of anti-masker rallies that are happening. And I, and I think part of that is, is um, not just the police, but but I think we as a city um, and, our, and our park board could probably do a better job of uh, ensuring that, that, that we are using all the tools available to us. I, you know, I, I couldn't, under normal circumstances, I'm not allowed to just go down and set up an event, a park, right? a permit. So you how know, did that and, happen? And there would be, how does that happen? And why aren't we, and I understand that, that the one anti-mask group has been leaving their stuff there overnight and, and locking it down so they can return the next day. That's completely inappropriate, and we are well within our right uh, as local government to, and with with the full weight of the bylaws behind it, to seize that equipment, seize and impound that equipment. We can't just store stuff in public public space without permission. So then, Councillor Fry, where does that go? Then do you do you say do you ask the park board? Hey, are you going to look at this? Like, what do you do? You know, I did send a send, send a note out um, late last week to look specifically at that. I haven't really had anything back from staff yet, but I think that that is, you know, we need to be working a little bit more proactively around how we can recognize that, by and large, the majority of Vancouverites have been 
super diligent in adhering to the advice of the provincial health office. Um, and then there's these sort of flagrant um, contraventions of it by just, you know, by a small group, but it, it really, uh, I think, sets a wrong tone. And I think we need to show a little bit more leadership around those kind of um, scoff laws. Yeah. So how does that happen then? What What do you think is on the agenda for this week? Well, I, you know, again, this is these are moving goalposts, and obviously it's summertime, and I do recognize that when it comes to large interactions, and as we heard from this weekend, we had folks throwing bottles at police uh, because they refused to, to vacate the beach. So it is a challenge to deal with large crowds of, you know, inebriated uh, partiers. And, 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 and I think that the police generally have techniques that would de-escalate those situations and safely sort of disperse folks rather than go in with, you know, riot, riot squads and crackheads and arrest people. That's not, not the solution either. But I think that there has to be, again, you know, from, from my perspective, I think we could do a better job of being more proactive in, in bylaw enforcement. And it, it, it does take resources and it does take policing, but, you know, rather than, um, than say targeting the people who are at the party, really targeting the party organizers. So yeah, if that means confiscating their illegally installed equipment, if that means uh, finding them and issuing bylaw fines to them as organizers for violation of of not having a permit to have a you know a, an event in a park, it hit them that way. Uh, agreed. Yeah, more proactivity, right, as opposed to reactivity. Yeah, and going after the organizers, not the the individuals. I mean, that seems like a, a more thoughtful and reasonable approach anyway. It does. Uh, Councilor Fry, thanks for your time this morning. All right, cheers.